the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Friday, June the 2nd, 2024. Uh, over the years, we've done lots of shows about writing about nature and the wilderness, about writing about the wild, lots of very distinguished writers. One with the former New York Times writer, Verlin Klinkenborg, about writing about nature. He believes in simple language, what he calls interspecies empathy and using your eyes or our eyes like a hawk. Uh, his book, uh, The Rural Life, I think, summarizes that. Another with... Um, Carl Safina, a very influential writer, whose book, uh, Becoming Wild, has been extremely successful. He believes writing about the wild requires a degree of humility about ourselves and other species. My guest on the show today is another very distinguished writer on the wild. He's the author of one book, many books, in fact, but one book, David Quarman, called Wild Thoughts from Wild Places. So he's given a lot of thought to the wild. And he has a new book out, another book about the wild. The Heartbeat of the Wild, Dispatches from Landscapes of Wonder, Peril, and Hope, a collection of essays and investigations that he's written for many publications, including National Geographic. I'm thrilled that David is joining us, David Quarman, joining us from his home. In Bozeman, Montana, he doesn't want other people going there. He says it's overpopulated. Of course, he's absolutely right. So don't go. Just read David. Uh, <laughs> David, uh, congratulations on the new book. So let me ask you a simple question. How, how should or how does one write about the wild? Well, I agree with those colleagues of mine that you've cited already. Verlin is a friend. Uh, for me, writing about the wild has involved both uh, embracing the emotional aspect and plumbing the scientific aspect. I've spent a lot of time over the last 40 years in the wild, watching the wild like a hawk, uh, caring about the creatures that I found there, but also a lot of time studying evolutionary biology, theoretical ecology, and spending time with the scientists who study the wild, who study the lions of the Serengeti and the elephants of northern Samburu and the wild Pacific salmon on the Kamchatka Peninsula. So for me, it's been shadowing the scientists who are the toughest intellectually and physically as they do their work understanding um, and trying to preserve the wild. Yeah, and uh, one of the nicest things I think written about your work was by the very distinguished uh, writer, Elizabeth Colbert. Uh, there, and I'm, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing her last name correctly, but she, she wrote about you, David. There's no one who writes about complex science better than David Quarman. What does writing about complex science require? Um, I'm sort of misquoting Einstein, I'm guessing, but does it require a degree of simplicity, but not too much simplicity? Well, I think it does, yes. Um, for me, writing about complex science, including those branches that I just mentioned, evolutionary biology, theoretical ecology, but also virology, infectious disease science, um, one of the advantages I have is that I'm not trained as a scientist. I have very little academic training in science, but the life sciences have been a journalistic beat 
for me and an authorial beat for the last 40 years. So I have remained an outsider looking in. I read a ton of journal articles. I talk to some of the smartest scientists around the world. I spend time with them in the field. But I remain the proxy for the reader who is a non-scientist. I remember what it's like to not know what a scientist is talking about when he says, well, it's the difference between meiosis and mitosis. And of course, in this particular aspect of DNA replication, et cetera, et cetera. I remember what it's like not to know the jargon, not to know the concepts, but to be eager to learn them. So I always think about the reader. Where does that person, that man or woman stand with regard to this complex stuff? I want to stand with that person and say, look, if I can understand this stuff that these guys are talking about, you can too. Trust me. Come with me. Does it require, David, the telling of stories? We've had a number of shows with very distinguished writers, Kerry Arsenal, for example, and Bathsheba DeMuth, who's written, I'm sure you're very familiar with her wonderful book, Floating Coast, an Environmental History of the Bering Strait, where you've also been. Does it require telling stories? Is that the essence? Is that the challenge? Is that what readers want? That is certainly an important part of it. You have to remember that your readers are people. People want to read about people. So when you write about science, in my view, you tell stories of people, of people doing the science, of people affected by the situations, affected by the science. You tell stories. And many scientific investigations are essentially mystery stories. And that's 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 an advantage in terms of writing something that's appealing to the general reader. That's a page turner, a certain amount of suspense, a certain amount of discovery, a certain amount of mystery. And these heroic scientists who are the detectives in this work. So um, so I have written about a lot of famous scientists and obscure scientists, but I I've always found it satisfying and effective for readers to tell the stories of these people out there trying to solve these these mysteries. Your book, Heart, your new book, Heartbeat of the Wild, Dispatches from Landscapes of Wonder, Peril and Hope, is, of course, full of stories. And there's no more memorable story, certainly for me, than the story that you tell of this character, Mike Fay. Remarkable man, never heard of him before. A man who essentially has trekked across Africa, has become the the Dr. Livingston of, of our age. Tell us about Mike Fay and what's so remarkable about him and why he features quite prominently in the heartbeat of the wild. Mike Fay is an American ecologist and conservationist who has spent most of his career in Central Africa out in the wildest places, studying what is there, how it works, originally did his uh, PhD work on gorillas and gorilla um, diets, what they eat. So he knows the Central African forests from the ground up, from the plants all the way up through the big charismatic animals like, uh, like gorillas and forest elephants. I first met him in 1999 when National Geographic called me up one day, National Geographic magazine, and said, uh, see here, we want you to be the writer on a big project we're going to be doing we're going to do a series of stories on a crazed uh, explorer ecologist named Mike Fay, who is going to walk 2,000 miles bushwhacking through the last remaining forests of Central Africa, 
from the northeastern corner of the Republic of the Congo across Gabon to the Atlantic Ocean in order to survey what's there to to identify the hotspots of biological diversity so that they can be preserved. And so I said yes to this assignment and I walked with him, not for the whole 2,000 miles, but I walked with him for about 53 days um, bushwhacking through the jungles and swamps of the Congo. He walked for 456 days before this expedition was finished. And I mentioned toughness, intellectual, as well as physical. I have never met uh, a conservation biologist, an ecologist, uh, a biologist who had a more impressive combination of physical toughness, dedication, and intellectual toughness than this guy, Mike Fay. And also, I'm guessing, um, David, a, a little bit of insanity. Oh, yeah. Yeah. At one point in one of the pieces, I, I say there are three three pieces about uh, Mike Fay embedded in this book. The book is knit together from these pieces. I, I hope that it's something of a whole now. It's really the whole book is is essentially my narrative manifesto on wildness and conservation in the 21st century. But um, uh, but I at one point I said that uh, Faye, when I saw him at one point in the midst of this, sitting alone on a rock in the middle of the forest, he reminded me of uh, of uh, Joseph Conrad's Kurtz, not the uh, not the bloated uh, Marlon Brando version, but the version in the book, um, a man um, gone feral into wars of his own. And of course, from uh, Heart of Darkness, uh, Conrad. Heart of Darkness, absolutely right. Yeah. So yeah, there were times when I thought. Um, Mike Fay had gone over the edge, um, <laughs> but uh, it was uh, always a sort of a brilliantly calculated um, level of frenzy and dedication that he sometimes used for for summoning his forest crew, this group of group of twelve African men who walked with him and helped him on this whole journey. Sometimes he had to get them across a particularly big swamp. They had to swim a, a Blackwater River or whatever. And I would hear him, I'd be there, and he would read them the riot act. He would be hollering at them in, in Congolese French. And, uh, and he was devoted to finishing his mission, but also getting those men through safe and sound, getting them to the, to the Atlantic Ocean alive. And he did seem just a little bit crazy at times, but he was just deadly sane, I realize. Yeah, I like that phrase, um... David deadly sane he brings to mind as you suggest that the central figure from Conrad's Heart of Darkness a book about European colonialism and its catastrophic impact on the African continent I wonder I'm not suggesting that Faye is like a 19th century colonialist or he's responsible for colonialism but it is there a quality to to Faye a sort of that almost Darwinian quality of of, of, of mental fanaticism, of focus, of well, obsession there, with nature there is, and geography? There, there is. He is very, very devoted to conserving these places, conserving the forest elephant, which, of course, have been savaged by poaching for ivory, um, conserving the gorilla populations, conserving the great trees. But he also recognizes something that the great African explorers of the 19th century, even... Um, those who had some redeeming humanity to them, like Savignon de Braza, uh, who, uh, after whom the city of Brazzaville is named. Faye recognizes that 
you can't do conservation of biological diversity without also having concern and contributing to the livelihoods of the people who live in and around the forests. That's something that wasn't understood um, in ages past and is understood clearly by anybody who is doing sensible, wise conservation now. It's not just about the big animals. It's not just about the big trees. There are people living either in or around these places, and you can't, you can't protect the wild places without simply by locking them out. You protect the wild places by helping them raise their livelihoods as well so that they don't need to poach elephants um, or to poach chimpanzees for food. They can live good lives, get educations, get health care as, as part of this whole project. And I write about that also in uh, one of the pieces near the end about Gorongosa National Park in Mozambique, which is an exemplar, a paradigm of that approach to conservation. Yeah, it's interesting. We did a, a show last year. I can't remember. I'm embarrassed to admit. I can't remember the name of the author, a young woman who wrote a book in favor of um, poor Americans living in forests, their right to poaching trees or cutting down trees. Where do you stand on that? And she argues that our love of nature is a very middle class thing. And we sometimes forget that many people are simply dependent on nature for their livelihood. Well, I agree and disagree. I don't think love of nature is a middle class thing. There are many people who um, are struggling in low income countries or low income communities um, in around the world and in America who have a great love for nature. But I absolutely agree with her that there is there is a forgetfulness too often in people who draw lines on maps and say this shall be wild and we'll keep people out and we'll protect the, the, the biological diversity inside this boundary and call it a national park. You have to do what has been done in the best of these projects, like, such as Gorongosa National Park in Mozambique, and that is remember that um, you will have no long-term success with preserving biological diversity unless you also preserve the welfare help of the of the people in the ecosystem surrounding your national park um, and help them raise their standards of living and Im improve their opportunities as well it can be done as one enterprise but your author is right that it's it in the past and still to some degree in the present it is too often forgotten um, the welfare of the people as well as the welfare of all the other creatures. David, of course, it's a truism to suggest that we travel to go home and understand our home. What of all your travels, especially in Central Africa and Latin America, what has it taught you about conservation in the United States as an ongoing debate? We've done mm -hmm. many shows about whether America should indeed be divided up, whether the, the Teddy Roosevelt version of, 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 of appreciating nature should require the, the carving off of nature. Where do you stand on that? And where, what are the, all your travels in, in Heartbeat of the Wild and elsewhere? What has it taught you about the challenges and opportunities um, of conservation in the United States itself? Well, this comes home to me um, very strongly and clearly, Andrew, because 
where I stand is within the greater Yellowstone ecosystem. This room from which I'm talking to you in Bozeman, Montana, is within what we call the greater Yellowstone ecosystem. It's an area of roughly 20 million, 22 million acres of which Yellowstone National Park, the first American National Park, arguably the world's first national park, this great national park that still contains grizzly bears and bison and elk and the other uh, large charismatic fauna of the West. Yellowstone National Park is a rectangle that was drawn by a white man um, in government in 1872. We know now that the grizzly bears, the elk, the other creatures there, they can't see that rectangle. They can't see those boundaries. And they flow out of Yellowstone National Park into the national forests, onto the Indian reservations, into the national wildlife refuges, um, and the private ranches that surround the park and constitute together this great amoeba shape that is the greater Yellowstone ecosystem. And that ecosystem contains not only uh, ranchers and small towns, but a town the size of Bozeman, this thriving tourist metropolis of from some 50 or 60,000 people on an interstate highway. We are part of the greater Yellowstone ecosystem. So the things that we do, my fellow citizens in this town, my fellow voters in this county, in this state, the things that we do in terms of our own choices, our own consumption, affect the other creatures in this ecosystem, including the grizzly bears, including the eagles um, and the osprey and the elk and the cutthroat trout. So for me, it's, it's easy to remember that everyone has a responsibility, that, uh, that conservation needs to begin at home. And for, and for me, it has. This is my home, and I've been involved in understanding conservation imperatives, conservation choices, the, the conundrums that come up balancing human welfare with welfare of biological diversity. I live amid that. And when I go to Africa, I see simply another version of it. Uh, talking about Africa, um, David, my wife and I are flirting with the idea of a, a trip to Africa, taking photos of wildlife and so on. We're not unusual in that sense. Should we be thinking about Africa in that way for people like myself, who, who, who are concerned about conservation, but don't have your on-the-ground knowledge, should we be thinking of Africa in particular as, yes, if I, you like, yes. a laboratory for wildness or for the wilderness? Yes, I think so. I think so. I mean, tourism, even ecotourism, wildlife tourism, is not the be-all and end-all of how we preserve wild places, but it helps. It's one element. So if you and your wife go, for instance, to Kenya or Tanzania to see the iconic big wildlife in the great open spaces of the East African savannas, which many people do, that will be a good thing, uh, especially if you um, are a little bit choosy in terms of um, uh, who, who guides you and where you stay and what tourism companies you work with to make sure that there is a reasonable amount of partnership of ownership of participation in benefit of the local by the local people it's a wonderful thing to do and to see you know you, for instance giraffes andrew you can see giraffes in a zoo but you really really haven't 
experience the majesty of giraffes until you've seen a group of six giraffes gallop across the Serengeti Plain. And if you have an opportunity to, to experience something like that, uh, it will it will put a grip on your heart that will never go away. And you'll remember that Africa, Africa, this place full of wild animals and still many wild places, is a place from which humanity sprang. And yet they have managed to preserve more of their great, charismatic, dangerous wild beasts than any other place any other continent on the planet. Africa is a success story, and it's worth going there uh, and listening and watching and trying to understand how that has happened. Well, thank you for giving me permission, David. If anyone criticizes, I'm going to say, well, David Quarman gave me permission, so it's none yeah, of your fair business. Fair enough. David, you've talked about a lot of the good things, the exciting things, the things you're, you're enthusiastic about. But, of course, in any manifesto about conservation, there's going to be a, 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 a dark element, a critical element. What concerns you? What keeps you awake at night as a conservationist, particularly as someone who spent so much time traveling around the world? Well, uh, there are things that, that trouble me deeply. There are things that we are losing that we can never regain. Some of those are the big charismatic creatures. What has happened to the two species of African elephant in the last hundred years, the forest elephant and the savanna elephant is just heartbreaking. Um, likewise, the lion, the iconic um, big species of Africa, there's a lion, a great photograph. There he on, is. On the, the photograph on the cover of the book. Yeah, right. beautiful photo. And, and that is a particular lion that I write about. That is a lion whose name was Seaboy, as in the letter C. Uh, and he was a survivor um, the photographer, Nick Nichols, and I tracked him with the scientists there. We told his story. Uh, he had survived um, all of the dangers that African lions face, both from humans and other lions. It was an inspirational creature. So I am concerned about the loss of those big charismatic species as human population and human consumption increases to eat up wild landscape. I am equally concerned about small creatures. I, I, I am haunted by the fact that there aren't as many insects on this planet as there were, when, you know, 65 years ago when I was a little kid in Cincinnati collecting insects, studying insects, fascinated by insects. We are going through what you mentioned, Betsy Colbert, Elizabeth Colbert, what uh, Betsy Colbert has called and others have called the insect apocalypse because of a lot of the things that humans are doing, there are many fewer monarch butterflies migrating, many fewer beetles, many fewer insects of all sort. And insects are crucial, both in terms of ecological function and in terms of the, the beauty, the majesty, the diversity of life. These things, uh, they, uh, I think about them at 4 a.m., uh, we don't yet have our Jane Goodall or our Mike Fay of the insect apocalypse issue. We need that. Um, and I'm not saying listeners, your audience needs more thing, need more things to worry about, nor, more things to feel bad about. But there are things that we can do about all these issues, all these losses that are happening. And then those are among the losses that, uh, that strike me uh, particularly deeply. 
another wonderful writer we've had on the show is Priyanka Kumar on reading nature, especially birds. She has a new book out, Conversations with Birds. David, how do we have conversations with insects? Or should we be thinking of having conversations with insects, given your, your rather dark foreboding about their fate? It's interesting you should mention uh, Priyanka Kumar and her book, Con Conversations with Birds. I haven't read the book yet, but I met her recently, had a nice conversation with her. Yeah, she's a delightful person. I yeah, having yeah. Her on the show. Um, so I'm not sure exactly um, what her point is with that title. I think it's, um, but I think it begins um, with, not with talking to insects, but with looking at them carefully, looking them in the eye getting down on your hands and knees if necessary and seeing here is a creature say it's a praying mantis say it's a dung beetle um, say it's a, a great cecropia moth looking it in the eye and and feeling here is a living creature that's trying to make a living just the way I'm trying to make a living that has needs and fears and dangers that face and a desire to reproduce and, and to continue its um, perpetuate its DNA. Um, get down either virtually or metaphorically and look those insects in the eye and think about their desire to live and to continue and their needs. Um, and that's true with all all sorts of life. I mean, I you know, I'm I'm not crazy, but I talk to trees when I walk the dogs. I have a particular ma maple tree that I admire deeply in this neighborhood, and I tell that tree what a wonderful job it's doing this spring, putting out leaves. I talk to the crows and I talk to the squirrels when I walk along. They don't talk back to me, except the crows do. Uh, and uh, it's uh, it's just part of feeling like you're you're within nature. You're not separate from nature. Um, you're a fellow creature with these creatures. And if that's what Priyanka is getting at in her book, then I agree with her entirely. It's not just talking to insects or birds we struggle with, David. It's talking to one another. We live in an increasingly divided world. You seem to skate over some of those divisions. Here we have a photograph of you in the Russian Arctic. What you know, you're not a political writer. I'm not asking you to talk about the Ukraine war or the current tensions between the United States and Russia and China. But what do you think writers on the wild, on nature, like yourself, bring to our struggle with talking to one another as human beings? Well, first of all, the appeal of great creatures, um, the beauty and majesty of the natural world uh, isn't limited to one political side or another. Um, everyone either feels or is capable of feeling um, some connectedness to that, some appreciation of that. Where we diverge is in the means of uh, taking care of it or not taking care of it. Where, where we diverge is in our philosophy of whether humans and human needs are supreme above all else on this planet, and we should feel free to consume everything that we want and burn all the fossil fuel that we want and not consider what the impacts of it may be. Or, on the other hand, realizing that um, because our population is so vast, 
and our intelligence uh, is so high and we're able to create technology to consume the natural world so rapaciously, we have a responsibility to recognize that everything does not exist solely for our use. Now, that's, uh, that is a basic dichotomy that does, to some extent, parallel political divisions. Uh, how do we deal with that? Um, we never give up um, trying to listen as well as talk and persuade people that the rest deserves consideration. The rest, the rest of the people, the people who are, who are not empowered, the people who are not privileged, they deserve consideration and the rest of life on earth also deserves consideration. But it's something that has to be done with persuasion. It can't be done with mathematics. It can't be done with syllogisms. It has to be done by sharing wonder and the appreciation of wonder, listening carefully and, and, uh, and being patient. David, uh, I think the book before the heartbeat of, of the wild was breathless. Uh, the scientific race to defeat a, vir a deadly virus on, on Ebola. Ebola. Uh, we, of course, just lived through COVID. Are these... Actually, breathless is about COVID. It's all about the COVID coronavirus. Right. Although so, I have written about Ebola in the past. So, so, so your last book was about COVID. Are, are Ebola and COVID... Is that the revenge? Should we be thinking about them as the revenge of the wild on us humans? No, but I hear that said. Some people see it that way. The revenge of the rainforest, the, the revenge of the wild. Uh, I am not that much of a mystic. I don't personify nature. I appreciate the vast diversity of nature, but I don't think of mother nature or father nature as personified and, and having feelings of vengeance toward us. I think of it as an incredibly awesome, complex system of interrelatedness. But it's true that part of that system of interrelatedness means that we, when we disrupt nature, among other consequences, we come in contact with the viruses and other pathogens that all wild creatures carry, all non-human animals carry varieties of viruses, some of which are potentially dangerous. So when we intrude on wild ecosystems, when we cut down forests, build timber camps, capture wildlife for food, we expose ourselves to those viruses such as Ebola, such as SARS-CoV-2, such as a whole list of others that I've written about in other books. Um, and so in a sense, we have, we have triggered uh, consequences upon ourselves. And if you want to personify that as as the revenge of nature or the revenge of the of uh, the rainforest, then I won't quibble with that metaphor, but it is simply a metaphor for the interconnectedness of complex systems. Speaking of the uh, interconnectedness of complex systems, final question, David. Uh, a few weeks ago, we had the tech writer Ashley Vance on the show writing about the new frontier certainly for Silicon Valley, which is space, men like Elon Musk's quote-unquote colonization of space. What warnings would you offer to people like 
Musk, who I don't suppose probably is familiar with most of your work or, or most of the work of your school of writing, what mm -hmm. lessons should humans now who are developing the business, the pioneering the business of colonizing space, just as we colonized, we Europeans colonized North Africa, North America and Africa in the 17th, 18th and 19th century. What lessons would you offer, particularly the lessons you bring from the heartbeat of the wild for our colonization of or our attempt to colonize space, which is just as wild as Africa or, 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 or the Russian Arctic? I would offer as a lesson the myth of Icarus, the Greek myth of Icarus. Um, he thought he could fly if he glued feathers to his arms. Uh, he flew too close to the sun, the wax melted, and he fell to earth. He fell back to earth. I think that it's amazing that we can explore space with the technologies that we have. Uh, I won't say uh, it, that we shouldn't do it, but I think we always have to remember that we're very, very, very unlikely ever to find another green planet with oxygen and water on it that can serve as our home away from home. We have to assume that wherever we travel, this planet is it in terms of being a true home for, for our form of life. Uh, and therefore, we need to take care of it.